It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Thank you, Chuck, and welcome everybody inside in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. I am your host, Mike Vaccaro. Behind the scenes is JR Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. We're up to episode 11 here today. And for our episode 11, our guest, it is a best-selling author, John Feinstein. At 28 years old, he started with a season on the brink, a season with Bob Knight and the Indiana Hoosiers back in the mid-1980s that started his book writing career. 45 books later, it has led to Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, his somewhat controversial book out now here for the holidays. And we'll talk about a lot in between his basketball books, also a book about the PGA Tour and the Civil War about the Army-Navy football game as well. Plenty to talk about here, episode number 11, our guest, best-selling author, John Feinstein. Here and again, we have, we certainly appreciate you joining us here on your, your, I guess this is your book tour, doing it via Zoom and in other ways with uh, your new book coming up that we're going to certainly dive into. But uh, before we get into your books where you've got 45 of those books that, that you have written so far, and I want to talk about you and your background. You're, you're a, a New York guy. You're, you were born in New York. Uh, how much growing up or, or sports part of your life that, uh, again, it became what you're doing now in your, your professional life? Sports was my life, uh, Mike, growing up. I, I played everything uh, in the schoolyard, in the park across the street from my house, uh, football, basketball, baseball. Uh, I played tennis and golf during the summers. Um, it turned out my best sport was swimming, uh, which I didn't start competitively until I got to high school. But, um, my swimming coach, fortunately for me, pointed out that, uh, a five foot four inch white kid wasn't likely to get a division one scholarship, but that he thought I had the potential as a swimmer to do so. Now I did eventually grow, uh, and got to six feet, but I was still slow, uh, and I became a decent enough swimmer to get recruited uh, by colleges uh, and to get into college, to be honest. And uh, but always not in addition to playing, I went to games all the time. In 1969, when the Mets won the World Series, I was at 66 games, including the playoffs in the World Series. I would go to Yankee Stadium, even though I didn't like the Yankees as much as the Mets. But it was easy to ride the subway. Uh, as a kid, I went to Madison Square Garden all the time to see the Knicks and Rangers in college basketball games. I could get in for two bucks with my geo card. And at college games anyway, you could sneak downstairs because the building was rarely sold out. And uh, when I got to college, I, I fell down a flight of steps sober and broke an ankle, uh, which is embarrassing. Uh, but it led to my uh, starting to work at the student newspaper. And I realized fairly quickly, A, that I liked it, and B, that it was a way for me to stay connected to sports when clearly I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. In those days, even if you were a great swimmer, which I wasn't, I was a good swimmer, uh, you couldn't make a career out of swimming. So uh, I said, okay, this is the way for me to stay involved in sports. I was lucky enough to get a summer internship at the Washington Post when I graduated and have been at the Post in some way, shape or form for most of the last 40 plus years. So you never really were, were a writer before that in high school? You never worked with your student newspaper? 
No, there was no student newspaper. Uh, I went, I went, when I was recruited as a swimmer, my cat is moving the screen around. I apologize. Um, uh, I went to a very small school and we didn't have a student newspaper. I, I did enjoy writing. My parents said I always wrote long letters home from summer camp, but no, I didn't have any experience writing uh, until I got to college and went up to the Chronicle and, um, like I said, I enjoyed it. It was also a great place to meet girls and that didn't hurt either. Well, well that college w was Duke for you. And, and so, so you're a, you know, a Northeastern guy, you, you go to the South at, at Duke. Uh, why was Duke the, you know, the, the good landing spot for you to go to school? Well, to be honest, my dad who grew up during the depression and had the grades to go to an Ivy league school, but not the money. He ended up going to city, city college in New York, which was a very good school at the time. Always wanted me to go, to Yale because he was doing some teaching there. He was in the performing arts. He taught a graduate school class uh, in, in performing arts management at Yale. Uh, and Yale had a, a pretty good swimming program and they did recruit me. Uh, but to be honest, when I went and visited Duke, it was January, it was 65 degrees. The girls were walking around in halter tops and shorts. Uh, the pool was brand new. It felt like you were swimming outside whereas the pool at Yale was in the basement and you could smell the chlorine from miles away. Uh, and I went to a basketball game in Cameron. And Duke wasn't very good back then. Uh, they were 12 and 14 that season. But that day, they beat Maryland, which was ranked second in the country. Gary Melchioni scored 39 points. And the place went crazy. And as we were walking out, I turned to my dad and I said, if I get in here, I'm going here. Uh, he wasn't very happy about that. I'm not sure he ever forgave me. But uh, he didn't try to force a decision on me. I was lucky that way. And as you said, you started doing some writing there. What, what, what drew you to that? What did you like about, you know, working for the, the newspaper there and then your, your time at the Washington Post as an intern? Well, um, the Chronicle, the first thing I liked, as I said, was the girls. Um, but I found writing was easy for me. I, I, I write like I talk. So I hear the words in my head. That was true then. I think it's true now. I can write fast, which always helped me as an, has still helps me as a newspaper guy. Um, I was fascinated by the idea of getting to understand people. Didn't matter whether they were in sports or not. I, I always found it fascinating to hear people's stories. I still do. Um, and so I, my parents had moved to Washington while I was in college. So I started reading the post and loved reading the post. I uh, loved reading the sports section, the politics. Um, I, when I was at the Chronicle, I didn't just cover sports. I, I, I was uh, managing editor of the paper uh, for one year, in addition to being sports editor. And uh, so, so I, I applied for the internship. I, I thought that would be great. I, I figured I'd start my career in North Carolina somewhere, but um, I got the internship and at the end of the internship, I was actually hired as the night police reporter, um, which turned out to be a great break for me because it was a great learning experience as a reporter covering uh, things that were a little bit more serious than somebody missing a jump shot to lose a game. And I ended up working for Bob Woodward, who became the Metro editor uh, while I was on the Metro staff and be became a mentor to me and is still a mentor to me uh, all these years later. And Bob is the best reporter who ever lived, at least as far as I'm concerned. And so working for him was like getting a PhD in journalism. And by the time I went back to sports, because that was my first love, 
uh, I think I was a much better reporter than I had been before. Yeah, did you look at sports maybe in a different light? As you said, you know, you're not just talking about missing jump shots. There's more depth to sports there than maybe some people think. Yeah, well, I, I yes, I, I certainly looked at things differently. Uh, when you've knocked on the door of families who've had a child killed uh, or murdered, um, it, 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 it makes going into a losing locker room a lot easier. Uh, you, you understand uh, that the, the guys in there are upset about losing. You respect that, but you also understand that it's not life and death because you've dealt with life and death, uh, which I did uh, during my time uh, as a news reporter. I, I was involved in a series of stories about a group of police officers in Prince George's County, uh, which is the county one out from D.C. on the northeast side, um, who had actually set up black teenagers to be murdered. They were called the death squad uh, within the police department. Uh, that's, that story, that series of stories was a whole lot more serious and intense uh, than whether Maryland could beat North Carolina. Uh, although Lefty Giselle might disagree with that. But uh, so, and, and I also, again, because of what I was doing, what I learned from Bob was you don't have to be rich and famous to have a story to tell. And a lot of my reporting through the years has been about people who aren't rich and famous. It's, it's probably the, the reporting that I've enjoyed most. I've written about Bob Knight. I've written about Mike Krzyzewski, Tiger Woods, John McEnroe, uh, other superstars in sports. But I've also written a lot about kids who play basketball in the Patriot League, kid, guys who play football at Army and Navy and, and uh, take a shot, um, excuse me, um, raise a fist, take a knee. Uh, I, I write about some people who are famous uh, and, and very important in sports today. And I write about some others who aren't as famous, but have, as I said, stories to tell. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're finding that out doing these podcasts, the, the great stories that people have. And I want to dive into some of the, these stories and some of these books, again, as I mentioned, 45 books that you've written. Um, obviously when you mention your name, a lot of people go to season on the brink uh, with Bob Knight in Indiana back in the 85, 86 season. Let's start there and, and, and how that came about, because that couldn't have been an easy sell to Bob Knight to get him to say, OK, I'm going to have a reporter with me all season long. How did that go down? Actually, it was an easy sell, Mike. Um, I had covered Knight's Olympic team in 1984, uh, had developed a relationship with him. I was one of a handful of reporters he liked and trusted, I guess, and gave access to. And I actually went out to Indiana uh, in February of 85 when they were having a terrible season, spent several days with him and had total access during that time. Uh, sat with him in the locker room before the games. He walked me into the locker room when he talked to the players, went to practice, talked to him at great length. And uh, as it happened, that was the week he threw the chair. And I wrote a very long piece about him uh, that it started with the chair uh, for obvious reasons. And uh, but said in, in the piece that on the scale of crimes being committed in college athletics today, uh, throwing a chair uh, was probably a, on a scale of one to 10 was probably about a three. And he actually called me. Uh, usually when people call you after you write about them, it's to complain about something. But he thanked me uh, for, as he said, telling both sides of the story. And I said, well, Bob, I was able to tell both sides because of the access you gave me while I was out there. And he invited me to a dinner 
that he had in those days on Final Four Saturday, because in those days, the games were still played in the afternoon. Uh, I miss those days. And uh, I realized he was inviting me into his inner circle. It was his coaches, former coaches, buddies. And I thought to myself, if I could get him to give me the kind of access I had for the two days I was out there for a season, there might be a book in it. I'd never written a book. I was 28 years old and uh, asked a couple friends what they thought. And they said, yeah, if you can get him to do it, it might be a hell of a book. So that night after the dinner at the final four, I asked him if he had a few minutes to talk and he said, yeah, come on back to the room. He was rooming with the great Pete Newell, his mentor. And uh, Mike Krzyzewski was there because he and Knight were doing a clinic the next day and they had to plan the clinic. So they talked for a few minutes while I talked to coach Newell. And then Bob said, John, what can I do for you? So I walked through it. I said, next year is going to be critical for you because this year was so bad. Uh, I'm thinking if I could come out and have the kind of access I had when I was there earlier this season, there might be a book in it. And he said, have you ever written a book? And I said, no. And he said, do you have a publisher? And I said, Bob, I didn't think there was much point trying to get a publisher until you said yes. And he said, yeah, if you can find a publisher, come on out. And that turned out to be the bigger challenge, actually, because five publishers rejected the book. Wow. Uh, yeah, much the way five publishers rejected uh, this new book, which is sort of a full circle type of thing. But when I walked out the door that night with Krzyzewski, as soon as the door closed, he looked at me and he said, are you out of your blanking mind? You're volunteering to spend a season with him? And I said, well, you played for him for four years. He said, I needed to go to college. Last I looked, you've been to college. I said, well, you work for him too. And he said, yeah, I needed a job. Last I looked, you've got a pretty good job. And I said, well, I want to try it anyway. So as I said, five publishers rejected it. Uh, Macmillan, an editor named Jeff Newman, finally gave me a small advance. And I went and did the book. And you thought you were going to lose money uh, off of this. Is oh, I, 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 at, at, on the front end, I did lose money because uh, uh, I, I think I was making about $65,000 a year at the post and my advance was $17,500 and I had to take a leave of absence, obviously. So yeah, I, I, I certainly was losing money on the front end. I never dreamed I would make the money I made on the back end. Were you surprised about the, the overall success of this? I mean, again, at the time in the 80s, I mean, Bob Knight was obviously a big name in college basketball. Um, so, so it really took off, but you were still surprised by the success it had? Well, sure. I mean, it was my first book. Uh, I thought I had some remarkable material from the access Bob gave me, and he never backed off during the entire season uh, from that access. Uh, but I had no idea. I was hoping the book would do well enough that I would get to write a second book. That, that was my thought when the book came out. And then it just went crazy. And I remember going to do a book signing in Bloomington. Uh, my, my first initial book tour was two days, one day in Indianapolis, one day in Bloomington. And I pulled up to the bookstore. It was a store called TIS right off the campus. And uh, I, uh, I saw this line around the block. And I thought, geez, what, what celebrity do they have here today? Nobody, I'm not gonna sell a single book. And I, I walked in and the manager was standing there and he said, how do you like the line? I said, who is it for? What's going on here? He looked at me, he said, it's for you. And I, I was stunned. And I ended up signing a thousand books in a couple hours and went to another bookstore at, at a Walden's and did the same thing. And I was, I was literally getting calls from bookstores saying we can't get enough copies of your book. Uh, 
Wow. And Macmillan, the publisher, was kind of slow in going back for second and third and fourth printings. And finally, they just said to hell with it and published another 100,000 books in the next printing. And uh, it, when it landed on the bestseller list at, at number, I think it was number 13 the first week, I thought, wow, I wrote a New York Times bestseller. Isn't that great? And a couple of weeks later, it was number two behind Bill Cosby's fatherhood book, ironically. And <laughs> I called my dad and my mom. And I said, the book's number two on the bestseller list. And my dad said, well, why isn't it number one? That was my dad. <laughs> and I said, dad, Bill Cosby's number one. He's been number one for a year. I mean, this is as good as it's going to get. Well, a year later, a week later, I was number one. Then my dad got excited. So 28, your first book and your number one. I mean, what were you thinking at that point? And, and were, you, were you already kind of in your mind thinking, okay, this is what book two is going to be? Well, um, I, as I said, I was stunned and thrilled all at once. And I was dealing with Knight, you know, claiming that I had uh, betrayed him by leaving some of his profanity in the book, which is kind of amusing. It's, it, it, you know, as I, I, I had said to him during the season, to write a book about you without the word blank would be like writing a book about you without the word basketball. And he said, oh, I understand, but you're not going to leave all my profanity. And I said, no, Bob, I'm not going to leave all your profanity in because I want the book to be shorter than War and Peace. <laughs> and I honestly think he just heard the back end of that because uh, that's the way Bob is. And I had witnessed that in dealing with his coaches throughout the season. But um, yeah, my, my agent, uh, Esther Newberg, who's still my agent, um, who had told me what the first time I called her not to waste my time or her time with a book about a Midwestern basketball coach uh, was now all over me for you got to come up with another basketball idea you got to come up with another basketball idea so I, I finally did um, I thought it would be fun because I was the national basketball writer for the post at the time um, to just write about a season and, and find characters and focus on 10 12 different people I didn't have a set number in my mind and I, I wrote a, it's funny, my first proposal was 23 pages. My second one was two pages um, and got several offers for a lot more money than the $17,500 I'd gotten for season on the brink in advance and ended up spending the 87, 88 season researching uh, a season inside, which was my second book. Yeah, basketball seems to be a, a pretty good theme in a lot of your books. I've read a number of them reading uh, Back Rose to March right now. Uh, which I can relate to being a you know radio voice for kind of a I guess a so-called mid-major school where right. back roads quite a bit but but is basketball kind of your your sport I, I know you do other stuff you do broadcasting as well on the on the basketball side is that seems to be your sport yeah basketball is 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 my first love it's what I always come back to uh, as you said I I've written books on golf which have had a good deal of success I wrote a tennis book years ago I've written NFL books I wrote an Army Navy book. Um, so I like to joke I, I, that I've, I've written baseball books, uh, that I've written about every sport, but tiddlywinks and I love them all. I really do. I, I, I'm a huge, I'm a hockey fan. I've never gotten to write a hockey book. I, I have the title. It would be season on the rink. Um, <laughs> and now all I need is a book, but, uh, basketball is my enduring love. I, I, I still get a thrill walking into a packed gym on a winter night. And it doesn't matter whether it's an ACC gym or the gym at UNC Wilmington or UMBC. You can see this on my, uh, my sweatshirt. I do their games on television. Um, in fact, in some ways I enjoy the mid-major games at this point now 
more than the big time games because it's very good basketball, as you know, firsthand. Um, and, but there's none, none of the pretentiousness and, uh, and, and, and um, feeling of, of, of entitlement uh, that, you, that you get when you're around the, the, the major conferences, uh, the players and the coaches. So I, I still enjoy very much. I enjoyed doing the back roads to March. It was a joy ride. Uh, and obviously raise a fist, take a knee is the opposite because it's such a serious subject. But uh, for me, again, as I said at the beginning, it all comes back to writing about people, uh, whether they play basketball, coach basketball, no matter what they do uh, in or out of sports. Yeah, I could definitely tell that reading the back roads, just the, the coaches that you've spent time with and the great stories that you have to tell. And, and you talk about being in a, in a gym at, at night in the wintertime. And I got to talk about the palestra because that's, a, I'm reading a lot about that in this book here. And I've never had the pleasure of calling a game there. I've been in there and, and walked the concourse and seen the history of uh, the palestra, but what does that place mean to you in the landscape of college basketball? Well, my wife always says that if I, I ever go missing, she'll send the police to the palestra to look for me because she'll assume that's where I am. Uh, and I, I'm a New York kid, but to me, uh, Big Five basketball and, uh, and throw, throw in Drexel too, sort of defines what makes college basketball so great. And the palestra is the embodiment of that. Uh, it's, it, it, it's almost 100 years old. Uh, but they did renovate it a few years ago. So it's in, it's, it's in good shape, but it has all the history. As you said, you walk the concourse, it's a museum. Uh, and all the greats have played in the palestra. Will Chamberlain, it was Will Chamberlain's home court for a while. All the big five schools have played there. It used to be that all the big five games were played in the palestra. I miss those days. Uh, but it's still Penn's home court. And you know, just the other day, LaSalle played Villanova there because it was LaSalle's home game. Uh, and, and when you walk in onto the concourse, one of the first things you see is, is what I just call the sign. And nobody knows where the quote comes from, but it says very simply, to win the game is great, to play the game is greater, but to love the game is the greatest of all. And every time I stand in front of that sign, I get a chill. Uh, and I've done it dozens and dozens of times. And then you walk down the ramp uh, to, to court level and it's just a great feeling being in that building. And, and the atmosphere is always great, um, whether it's sold out or not. I love it, of course, when it is sold out. Um, the late Jack Shore, who worked for the AP in Philadelphia for 45 years, just passed away during the pandemic, sadly. Uh, he was 88. Um, but they used to, whenever the, the building was full, the PA guy would give Jack the mic. And Jack would just say, we have corners because it meant all the corners of the building were full. And that was just a, another great tradition. And I've already been there once this season. I went back for Penn's opener because it was the first game played there in two years because the Ivy League didn't play last year. And uh, I, I always try to get there at least two or three times a year. Yeah, I, I'm one that loves historic buildings when it comes to college basketball and the history of those programs. So uh, yeah, hopefully someday I get a call uh, a game there at the Palestra. Uh, let's dive into some other sports. Again, we're going to talk about raise a fist, take a knee here in a, in a little bit. But you mentioned golf and, and, a, and a, another wildly popular book of yours, A Good Walk Spoiled. How did, how did that transpire? How did that come to be? That really came about uh, as a result of my tennis book, um, which hard courts. Um, and I, I grew up as a tennis fan. Uh, tennis was the one sport my parents both loved. My dad played decently. 
I played decently as a kid, um, but it was one place where my dad and I could bond. Um, going to see, there were professional tennis tournaments in Madison Square Garden, and I would go to Forest Hills in those days. Uh, back then, ride the, 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 the subway out to Forest Hills and walk over. I remember seeing Arthur Ashe win the first US Open in 1968 and thinking that was awfully cool. He was in the army at the time, stationed at West Point, ironically enough for me. Uh, but uh, Hard Courts did surprisingly well. It was my first non-basketball book and people weren't sure how it would do. It got to number three on the New York Times bestseller list. And my editor, Peter Gathers at the time at Random House said, well, what do you wanna do next? And I, again, I always loved golf. I worked at a golf club as a kid in high school and college. Never played it particularly well, as my brother points out to me all the time. Uh, but uh, I said, well, why, why don't we do a similar book on golf? And he, he started shaking his head. He said, I, I don't know. There, there are no superstars in golf. This was before Tiger Woods. Um, and after the, you know, the Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, Tom Watson even was a little bit over the hill at, the, at that time. And, uh, and tennis, of course, when I wrote Hard Courts, had McEnroe and Connors and Lendl and Everett and Navratilova, all sorts of big names. And tennis was hugely popular back then, which it's not now in the United States. And I said, I said, Peter, I think there's a story to be written about the struggles. Because for every Greg Norman, Nick Faldo, Nick Price, those, those were the biggest names in the sport at the time. There are lots of guys out there who just want to get on the tour. So he said, you know what? I trust your instincts. And so I, I signed a contract and, and went and started researching the book. And it, it, what, what happened was golfers were so open to, for me as compared to tennis players. Tennis players, you, you, know, you needed a court order to sit down with somebody at length half the time. Golf, the locker rooms were open, unlike in tennis. You could walk on the range and talk to guys. You could walk on the putting green. You could walk with them which they greatly appreciated someone who actually went and walked 18 holes with them, which I did a lot because I enjoyed it. And so I developed very good relationships with a lot of the players. Uh, none of whom were Tiger Woods. He had not turned pro yet. He appears in one paragraph in the book uh, in which I, I saw he was actually playing as an amateur in, at Bay Hill. And several guys pointed him out to me and said, oh, he's the next one. And I would kind of roll my eyes because everybody was the next one. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but the book came out and it, much like uh, a season on the brink just kind of took off and ended up number one uh, on the New York Times bestseller list and actually ended up outselling season on the brink. Uh, you which, think the stories are more relatable to, you know, the, the casual. Well, it, out there? It, you know, Bob Knight, as fascinating as he is, is not a warm and cuddly figure. Um, there were guys in season on the brink, not the superstars, but guys like Paul Goidos and Jeff Cook, although I wrote about John Cook too, and Brian Henninger and uh, Curtis Strange trying to rebuild his career at the time. And Norman and Faldo were, were very good, sat down with me. They were both very bright, interesting guys away from the golf course. Faldo had a reputation of being totally prickly and impossible to talk to. He actually had a very good sense of humor, um, still does. Um, so uh, I, I and, and golfers love the idea that I think that the stars, the guys on the tour still struggle much the way they do. You know, when they struggle, they make bogeys. When, when hackers struggle, they make triple bogeys, but the struggle is there for everybody. 
So, you know, another subject, obviously, that the Army-Navy, the Civil War, 1995 season that, that you wrote about as well. It seemed like, you know, that's an obvious one that's out there, a story that's out there. What did you learn about, you know, that rivalry that, that so many people, you know, get excited about that, that have no ties to Army or Navy, but obviously, you know, everybody waits for that game that they, you know, just played the last weekend? Well, I had connections to both schools in different ways. I'd grown up in New York. My parents would take me up to West Point once a year. And I thought it was thrilling to watch the cadets march on the plane and then to be at the game. Mikey Stadium is as beautiful a spot to watch football as there is. Uh, and then when I got to the post, I, I covered Navy a lot, uh, as much in basketball back then, because David Robinson was there, uh, as football. And, and loved Annapolis and, and, and had been in Annapolis for two years, actually covering state politics. So I knew my way around the city. But uh, I want, I, I, the first time I actually went to the Army-Navy game was 1990. Uh, I'd written a long piece. I was working for the National Sports Daily at the time, the short-lived National Sports Daily. And I'd written a long piece about Army-Navy and sat down with a bunch of the kids and, and thought they were terrific. And when the game ended, I noticed uh, all the players going to one end of the field and first standing in front of the, the, the brigade of midshipmen while they played the Navy alma mater and then crossing the field uh, so to play the Army alma mater. And in those days, TV never showed this. Now it always does. But in those days, TV never showed this because they were getting to the next game, whatever came. It was a noon game in those days. And I had never seen it. And, and I said, what's this? And they said, oh, it's the playing of the alma maters. And, and I got chills just watching it. And I thought, I want to know more about these guys, who they are, why they go to Army, why they go to Navy, what football means to them. And I actually proposed the book um, to the two schools for 1991. And Army had a new coach that year, Bob Sutton, and he didn't want any outsider around during his first season. So they said no. So I went and did some other projects, uh, including Good Walk Spoiled. Uh, and in 1995, I decided I wanted to try it again. And initially, Bob Sutton turned me down again. Now he was on the last year of his contract and worried about his job. But he agreed to let me talk to four of his seniors, first classmen, as they were called. And after I talked to them, the four of them went to him because Navy had already agreed to cooperate with me. And he said, Coach, we can't let the Navy guys have all the fun with this. And Bob Sutton, who is a great guy and remains a close friend to this day, he texts me every year on the day of the Army-Navy game. Um, and he, and so he ended up coaching in the pros, has been in, in the NFL now for more than 20 years. But uh, he, he, he said, if the firsties want it, we'll, we're going to do it. So I had total access to both teams. I was back and forth uh, throughout the season. And I think, Mike, that I'm still the only person who wasn't president of the United States who's been in both locker rooms during an Army-Navy game. That's wow. something I, I like to brag about a lot. And, mm -hmm. and again, my, my publisher was skeptical because, you know, Army-Navy doesn't decide anything. Uh, very few guys go on to the NFL. How are we going to sell it? And I said, I think the stories will sell it I, without knowing the stories. And the book ended up on the bestseller list. So um, that and, and still every year during Army-Navy, I see a little pop that week uh, for sales of the book, which is kind of cool. Do you think going back to the season on a brink, if you don't have that success with that book, that you don't have the continual access that it seems like you've had, you know, spending time with players, spending time with coaches, spending time behind the scenes. Is that the one that, that 
open up the door in essence to, to really the, the rest of these books? Well, there's no doubt that it did. And that's why um, when people ask me about what Knight said about me after the book and things like that, I go, look, I, I couldn't have written a book without the access he gave me. He never backed away from it at any point during the season. So I'll always be grateful to him for that. I, I think that I was going destined to write books because I wanted to, and I think I had the talent to do it. Um, but what, what Season on the Brink did more than anything was it allowed me to do books I wanted to do. I, the, the publishers, public, no publishers ever come to me and said, do this. Uh, I go to them and I say, I'd like to do this. Then we have discussions about, you know, is it saleable? Can I execute it? <coughs> Usually I don't pitch a book unless I know I can execute it. Uh, as I said with Knight, you know, when he said, do you have a publisher? I said, I didn't think there was any point in finding a publisher till I talked to you. Um, I'm, I'm pretty much the same way to this day. But I think that, uh, that people knowing my name uh, certainly has helped. I remember when I first started doing the golf book, a lot of the golfers were basketball fans. So even though I hadn't covered very much golf at all, they knew my name. And, you know, a couple of them said, I, you know, I'll, I'll talk to you if you tell me all about Bob Knight. And my instinct <laughs> would say, read the damn book. But um, that definitely helped. Still helps to this day. Well, no, I think uh, last time I interviewed you, uh, it was the Legends Club that was out. Uh, and that's the book about Dean Smith, Coach K, Jim Valvano, obviously, you know, I'm in ACC country here. I want to talk about that uh, briefly because you were surprised by some of the stories I think that you heard about those guys and just, you know, you see those guys on one level, but uh, again, you, you've done a great job through your career with these books to, to learn about these guys. What, what was your big takeaway from, from that book and, and those guys and those? Well, programs? I was very lucky, Mike, because uh, I covered all three of them a lot in the eighties uh, as the college basketball writer for the post and knew them, had good relationships with all three of them. I mean, I, I, the, the first one I met ironically was Dean Smith when I was in college. Uh, and he, he, he treated me very well, uh, even when I was a student newspaper uh, from Duke. Um, and, and I always had great respect for him, uh, liked him, uh, found him challenging. And then I met Krzyzewski and Valvano actually when they were at Army and Iona respectively uh, at a, a luncheon in New York my senior year. Um, and developed relationships with all three of them as the 80s went on. Uh, and uh, also, fortunately, I'm a hoarder. So I had all my notes and, 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 and tapes from interviews with Dean and Jim. Jim had passed away. Dean was dying uh, of dementia at the time that I, I was doing the book. But, and I also have a very good memory. So the only one of the three I could interview at length was Krzyzewski. And he was terrific. And uh, he's always been great to me. Uh, he gave me four full days uh, just sitting in his office and talking about his life and his career and his relationships with them. And Mike also has a great memory, which was helpful. And at the end of the four days, uh, he, I said to him, hey, you know, we give each other a hard time a lot, which we do, but I want you to know how grateful I am for your giving me all this time. And he said, no, John, I should thank you. And I said, why should you thank me? And he said, well, I'm Catholic. When I die, I can tell God I've already been through purgatory. <laughs> uh, good, good sense of humor there from, from Coach he's K. He's quicker than people give him credit for. He yes. really is. Yeah, he's very stoic. And, and yes, uh, nice to see that other side. You know, of that, that. Yeah. 
There you go. There you go. Well, let, let's dive into uh, Raise the Fist, Take a Knee. As you said, you know, number of publishers bypass this. Uh, yeah. Let's start with, you know, why this? Why, why this subject and, and, and why you? Because I know you question maybe why you should write this book a little bit. Well, the why you is obvious. I'm white. And I can't possibly understand what it's like to wake up every morning and, be, and live life as a black person. Uh, and a number of people pointed that out to me right at the beginning. Uh, and I understood it and, and knew that was going to be the case. But I, I also understand that I've written a lot of books about college basketball coaches and I never coached college basketball. I've written a lot of books about playing life on the PGA tour. I've never played on the PGA tour. Um, and written books about college football and pro football and never played or coached either one. So the notion that you have to be black to write a book about what it's like to be black uh, was kind of foreign to me. And, and I said, my reporting is going to carry this because that's what, what I've always done. And uh, uh, there were, as you said, a lot of publishers, at least five publishers who were, I think, scared of the book because they knew, knew the right wing would you know, be pissed off um, and, you know, would, would see it as another liberal treatise of some kind. And frankly, it's not a treatise. It, it, I talked to about 100 people in reporting the book, uh, most of them black, but not all of them black. Um, see, I talked to the early and I talked to Tommy Smith and John Carlos. That's where the book starts. Uh, ra raise a fist. Um, and I talked to the early black NFL quarterbacks from Marlon Briscoe to Doug Williams to James Harris. Um, to Warren Moon. Uh, and Doug wrote the foreword for the book. He and I have known each other for years. He's, he's one of the all-time good guys. And I, um, I, so I, I knew I wanted to write it, knew I wanted to write it in 2017 during the anthem protests. Uh, I was doing a book on playing quarterback in the NFL that year. So I was in an NFL stadium every Sunday. And what I saw every Sunday were mostly black players kneeling and mostly white fans booing. And my thought then was, wow, um, we are as polarized today in 2017 as we've ever been racially in this country. It's the elephant in the room. And that's when I, I went and saw John Thompson, who I'd known for years and years. We battled frequently when I was covering his Georgetown teams. He didn't want to give reporters access. I'm a reporter, I wanted access, so we battled. But uh, there was always mutual respect. I, I remember John saying to me one time, I want you to understand something. I don't like you, but I do respect you. And that was all I wanted, really. Uh, but then we became friends after he'd retired. And I went to see him and I said, I want to write a book about race and sports, but it's such a huge topic. I don't know where to begin. And he looked at me and he said, you might as well try to explain the Holy Trinity. And probably he was right, but he then pointed a finger at me and said, which is why you've got to do it. And I think John felt, and some of my other colleagues, African-American colleagues, Kevin Blackstone, Mike Wilbon, people like that, felt that it was important that I do it as a white person, because it wouldn't just, it couldn't just be written off as, oh, it's another black guy, you know, saying how tough life is. And there are still people writing, you know, who are gonna write, oh, you're a liberal, that, this, that. I'm a proud liberal. Um, and uh, so I, I, then finding a publisher was the next step. And again, my agent didn't want me to do the book, um, because she thought I would get attacked on the right. And I have been, and I don't have any issues with that. Um, and my thought was, 
I just need to find a publisher, which I did, Little Brown. I actually went back to my old editor, Michael Peach, who was the one I had talked into a civil war. And I said, Michael, you got to trust my instincts. My instincts are this is an important book. And he did. And so I, I started calling as many and finding as many people as I could. Tony Dungy was great. Thank God I got to go down and see him before the pandemic started. Mike Tomlin was fantastic. I got to sit down with John Thompson at length before he got sick. Uh, I, you know, I talked to people like Nolan Richardson. I, I talked to people in all sports. I talked to Willie Randolph, who was a very successful manager with the Mets, got fired the way managers get fired and never got a second shot. I talked to Lovey Smith, who took the Bears to a Super Bowl with the immortal Rex Grossman as his quarterback. And three years later was fired after going 10 and six. How often do you hear about coaches getting fired who've had success uh, after going 10 and six? So, you know, Jimmy Ray, who was quarterback at Michigan State in the 60s and was an, a coordinator in the NFL for 20 years, never got a head coaching chance. And he said, I guess they wanted me to play in the band, but not lead the band. Um, and Eric Bieniemy, who's run the best offense in football for the last four years as coordinator in Kansas city has had 11 interviews, Mike, for head coaching jobs and, and has never gotten hired. So I, like I said, I talked to a lot of people. Uh, one of the more interesting conversations was with Mike Krzyzewski, uh, who had, had been a Republican most of his life, but uh, was so affected by George Floyd's murder. And I had started the book before the George Floyd, but that he actually put together Zoom interviews with every one of his former players, you know, like 20, 30 at a time. And he said the stories that his black players told, which he had never heard from them, uh, moved him and bothered him to the point where he put together a Black Lives Matter video. And if you haven't seen it, you should. It's only two minutes and 47 seconds long, but it's really, really poignant and affected and no script. Mike said he just looked at Nolan Smith, former player, current assistant coach while he was talking and just talked to Nolan. And so the reporting that I did taught me, what the reporting I did taught me was that the book wasn't really about polarization because saying that um, we're polarized is like saying racially in this country is like saying this is December. It's just a fact of life, unfortunately. But what I did learn was that even in 2021, uh, you know, years and years, Jim Crow went away in 1965 and um, we made great progress in terms of black quarterbacks in the NFL, but we still have a long, long way to go. 75% of the players in the NFL are black. Three of the 32 head coaches are, are black. Five of the 32 general managers are black. NBA is better, but still 75%, closer to 80% of the players are black fewer than half the coach head coaches are black and the numbers go on and on like that, but it's more Mike Tomlin and Tony Dungy both said the same thing to me. I asked them why they thought Roger Goodell was the one commissioner who wouldn't speak to me for the book. And they said, because he's embarrassed, he knows these, these numbers are bad. He knows there are issues with the owners, but they're paying him $44 million a year. And he doesn't want to say anything to you that might cost him that $44 million a year. So if he doesn't talk to you, he can't say something that he's going to regret uh, when one or more of his owners say, what do you mean we should have more black coaches? What do you mean we're an old white boys club, which they are? So uh, it, it was a, the reporting was a fascinating experience for me. And the response to the book has been out three weeks now 
overall has been fantastic. I think I said before it came out that I thought it was the most important book I've written. It probably won't be the best selling book I've written, but I think it is the most important. And that's pretty much been the response so far. Do you think the timing was right for you to have these people share their stories with you? If you tried this maybe 10, 15 years ago, you wouldn't have them share, you know, their, their, their intimate stories uh, of their experiences, whether it was a coach, whether it's a player, whatever the case might be. That's a very good question. Uh, and I, I think the answer is probably not. Uh, I think, as I said, I started the reporting in 2019, and, but I still did a good deal of it after the George Floyd murder. And I think the George Floyd murder and the react to, reaction to that Black Lives Matter uh, all affected people's willingness to speak on the issue and speak honestly on the issue uh, and say, Ozzie Newsom, who's not a jump on the table and, and wave his arms kind of guy, first black NFL general manager, the guy who drafted Lamar Jackson when everybody was saying he should be a running back or a wide receiver. We know how that's worked out. But he, he told me a story about in 1970, when he was 14, he went to a Pop Warner tryout. And uh, the coaches said, all right, quarterbacks over there, running backs there, wide receivers there. And he started walking toward the quarterbacks because in the schoolyard, he always played quarterback because he was the best player. And he, as he got there, he looked and he realized all the other kids were white. And he said, they're not going to let me play quarterback. The only quarterback, black quarterback who had played professionally at that point was Marlon Briscoe, who had played in 1968 for the Broncos in, in the AFL, played 11 games, finished second in the rookie of the year voting and was never given a chance to play quarterback again. Was very successful as a wide receiver, uh, but never played quarterback again. And so Ozzy said he went over with the receivers and we all know he became a hall of fame receiver. And he, uh, but what he said was it's 50 years later. And obviously we've made progress. I mean, just look at the great young black quarterbacks in the league right now. Um, but he, he said, I still think you have to be twice as good to play quarterback, to be a general manager in the NFL, to be a coach. And it's true across all sports. It's not unique to the NFL. The NFL just gets the most exposure. And uh, I, I think that says a lot. And, and again, it, 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 we're not talking Jesse Jackson here. And we're talking Ozzie Newsom, who is a quiet, usually tries to stay out of the public eye kind of person. How can people get that book? The holidays are, are upon us here. Obviously, you've got a lot of great books. That's your latest one. How can they uh, get that book? Should be in all bookstores now. Uh, I am getting some calls from bookstores saying that they're running out, which is a good thing to hear. But also you can get it at amazon.com very easily. Uh, it's discounted there because it's selling pretty well. Uh, and at barnesandnoble.com. And uh, I, I think there's a link on my website. I never know because my son runs my website, which is feinsteinbooks.com to get to Amazon to order it. Before I let you go, I want to touch on a couple of different things. Uh, you're in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, you were inducted back in 2013, the Kirk Gowdy Award winner uh, on the Prince side. As we mentioned, so much of your books, uh, the content is basketball. What does an honor like that mean? When you well, it, said it, 20, 28, your first book, and, and maybe you weren't thinking you were going to be an author. You're an award-winning author, bestseller, and now in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, it's the kind of thing where uh, I was thrilled uh, when I got the phone call. Uh, I have a lot of friends who have had that same honor. Um, some before me, some since then. Uh, so to, to win, to be voting, you know, your, 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 your peers vote on it. 
so it was uh, it was a great honor uh, to go in. I, I have suggested repeatedly to the Hall of Fame, and this is no knock on Kurt Gowdy, who was a great announcer, but there should be two separate awards. It should be a Kurt Gowdy Award for guys, TV and broadcast guys, because, you know, if you're growing up and you're old enough to remember Kurt Gowdy, why wouldn't you want to be Kurt Gowdy? But I've always, I've said often, and I've said it to the people at the Hall of Fame, that the print award should be named for Frank DeFord or some great print journalist like that. Because um, again, no knock on Kirk Gowdy. I grew up watching him and listening to him. If the, the award was named for Frank DeFord, it would have that much more meaning for me because as a writer, Frank DeFord was my hero. But it's still, it's a great honor um, to, to be part of that. Still doing TV? You still work with UMBC? What else are you doing uh, broadcast-wise? Yeah, I, I, you know, last year was, was tough because a lot of the uh, mid-major schools that I had worked with in the past weren't doing TV because of the pandemic. But this year, uh, they're back, and uh, I'm doing UMBC games for my sixth year. It's hard to believe. Ryan Odom, when he first got there, asked me to do it. And I had known his dad, Dave, when I was in college, and he was coaching at Durham High School believe it or not, because I worked as a stringer for the local Durham paper. Um, so this is my sixth year at UMBC. Uh, I think it's my sixth or seventh year with VCU. I love going down to the Siegel Center at Richmond, um, one of the great venues uh, in college basketball, doing some games at George Mason, uh, which, which is not far from my house. Uh, so, uh, and I, I'm still doing uh, stuff uh, for the Navy Football Radio Network. Uh, I've been associated with the two schools, obviously, in different ways, dating back to 1995. So it, it, it keeps me off the streets. It's kind of nice. Is that enjoyable to be on the broadcast side? Is, you know, again, with so much of your background being on the, the print side of things? Yeah, I enjoy it. Uh, and I think I'm different than, than most color guys because I, again, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I can do X and O's with anybody because uh, first time I ever did a game on TV, the director said to me, well, you, you, you would agree you can't do a, a X and O's like a former coach or player. And I said, I spent an entire season watching Bob Knight work every single day, every practice, every coach's meeting, every, in the locker room, every game, sitting on the bench. I think I almost had to learn something about basketball. So, but I, and, and so when it's needed, I'll talk X's and O's and changes of defenses and coaches strategies and things like that. But I also like to tell stories about the kids uh who they are how they got to be there I, you know uh umbc has a kid on their team next year this year named darnell rogers who is the son of shante rogers mm -hmm. who played at gw and was a very good player there at five foot four yeah darnell's five foot two and he is a headache for anybody he plays against and really a terrific kid and fun to to know and watch play so I, I, I love to get to know the stories of the players and the coaches too, um, and, and, and come at being a color analyst kind of from a little different angle than most guys do. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a storyteller. As, right. as you've done as well with, with 15 teen mystery books, is that correct? I, that was something yeah. that I found out in researching you get ready for this interview. I, I never realized you did teen mystery books. Tell us how that started. Well, it was, it was total fluke. Um, I was reading Carl Hyacinth's book, Hoot, his kid's book, with my son Danny, uh, who was, I want to say, 10 at the time. And we loved it. It was terrific. And Carl Hyacinth happens to be represented by the same agent I'm represented by, Esther Newberg. So I called her assistant at the time, Christine Bauck, 
and said, hey, can I get an email for Carl? I just want to drop him a note to tell him how much we enjoyed the book. And she said, sure, let me find it. And while she was looking for it, she said, have you ever thought about you know, writing uh, kids books? Because you talk about your children all the time. I had two at the time. Um, and there's very little in the sports genre for kids. And I said, no, I never thought about it. She said, well, you ought to give it some thought. So I did. And I've always enjoyed fiction that feels like it could be nonfiction. So I came up with an idea for a mystery set at the final four, because I'd been to 30 final fours at that point. And um, I submitted the idea and uh, a very good editor named Nancy Sisko at Knopf, who also edited Carl Hyacinth, uh, liked it. And I wrote it and it ended up winning the Edgar Allan Poe Award for mystery writing in the kids, young adult category. It was a bestseller. Um, and so I, I've continued to write um, kids mysteries, which I get a great kick out of. And I am now married to Christine Bauck and we have an 11 year old daughter of our own. So, so writing kids mysteries turned out to be a very important part of my life. So from kids mysteries to romance novels, novels there with your wife, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. A romance novel we probably won't write. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, well again, uh, give us the, the website and, and, and also how people can follow you on social media. Uh, again, with so many great books, the, the latest one, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, uh, but so many great books out there that they can you know, look at for the holidays. Well, my uh, Twitter is at jfeinsteinbooks. Um, my website is feinsteinbooks.com, no J. Um, and, uh, as I said, uh, through the website, if you want to do it that way, uh, you can, you can, there's a link to, I think to Amazon, as I said, my son does all that. Um, but the books are, the, the book is available at Amazon at barnesandnoble.com and, and at finer bookstores everywhere. So are you off on a book tour now or are you off getting ready? I, you know, book, book tours have changed a lot, um, since my first two day book tour for season on the brink. Uh, I'm not traveling as much as I used to. I'm doing a lot of stuff like this by Zoom. Uh, I am on my way tonight to Lake Tahoe um, to do a speaking thing and, and, and to do some book stuff um, in San Francisco. Uh, and then I've, I've been on um, uh, the, 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 the News Hour uh, with Judy Woodruff. I'm supposed to be on National Public Radio this weekend. I'm hoping next week to be on uh, Morning Joe. And, and those kinds of interviews for this book are very important because I'm not sure the typical sports talk radio listener is going to get what I'm trying to do here. Some will, uh, some won't. But if I, when I get on the news shows for this book, that's the best audience. Well, meaningful book. I'm looking forward to to reading it myself. And and like I said, I always enjoy your books and uh, the back rows to March right now in the middle of that and, and greatly enjoying that. And can't thank you enough for spending a little time with us. Uh, again, sounds like you have a very busy schedule ahead of you. So I, I certainly appreciate you spending a little time with us uh, to talk about your career and, uh, and what an amazing career it's been with all, all the work that you've done. Best of luck to you this year. Mike, thanks for having me and happy holidays to you and your family. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Glad we got I really it done. appreciate it, man. I apologize for the, the issues we had, but uh, we got to go. We'll, we'll get this up here uh, probably either today or tomorrow. Okay. Perfect. I appreciate it. You got it. Same here. Maybe I'll, I'll see you on the, on the road somewhere. Hope so. Take All it right. easy. Thanks, you Mike. Too. Take care. Thank you. 
Well, again, thanks for watching episode 11 with the best-selling author, John Feinstein. My thanks to him for giving us his time here today, right around the holidays. And again, check out his books, great gifts for anybody sports-related out there that loves to read a lot of basketball books out there for you to enjoy as well. Again, we thank you for joining us here today, and we hope to see you next week for another edition of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.